1: One of the things I open up the book with is one of my favorite quotes, and that is by Henry David Thoreau. And it's the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. And I started it out purposely with that because I think, especially today in this fast paced, success driven society that we find ourselves in, that the idea of living lives of quiet desperation is more prevalent than ever. That oftentimes we find ourselves in jobs or positions in our life. That lack fulfillment, I think we've all felt in that monotonous loop of meetings, emails, presentations, mm-hmm. whatever they are, that drain rather than inspire. And so what I wanted to do was to craft a guidebook, uh, because I don't want this to be read, I want it to be lived, but that will allow you to come into this, whether you're a new college grad or a high achiever, and value from the principles that I, that are outlined.
0: Hi there, and welcome back to the Luxury of Self-Care podcast. I'm your host, Anastasia, and that was a clip from today's guest, John R. Miles. I'm a little under the weather this week, so I'm super excited. The fact that I do have a guest, but my favorite part about having a guest is after the interview, I get to go back and I get to edit the episode because... I don't have lovely people that I can pay to do that, but it's also wonderful for me because I'm able to hear it in a different light. I'm able to understand part of the conversation in a completely different way. It's always fun to revisit any type of conversation or therapy or anything like that. If there's an opportunity for you to record, I highly recommend it. But what I loved about going back and listening to this episode is I feel like John's not my typical guest And not in a bad way. First of all, I usually have a lot of females as guests. That's just, I'll just point that out, call a spade a spade. But secondly, John's book really does touch on a lot of points about the self-care, about growth, about working on yourself, breaking things down and building you back up. And the beautiful thing about it is he really does, like he says in this clip, wants to make sure that you have active tools to actually live by the book and not just read it. There's so many different things you can sign up for the minute that you do buy the book, and we'll get a little bit into that in the episode. I want to dive in quick, but I do want to give him a fabulous introduction because he much, much deserves it. So John came to me in an email like most of them do, but it's because he's releasing his new book Passion Struck, which is 12 Powerful Principles to Unlock Your Purpose and Ignite Your Most Intentional Life. It launches on February 6th, so you are welcome to pre-order it now wherever you want to get your books. I did mine on Amazon. I haven't had the pleasure of reading it yet because it's still launching. Um, This episode is even launching before the book releases. So I'm very excited about that. But he has so much research that he used to combine behavioral science and peak performance strategies of compelling real life narratives from big, big, big name industry titans, Uh, Oprah, Elon Musk, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, astronaut Wendy Lawrence, and many, many more many of which he had the opportunity to either interview or work with. And he did this to really empower you and confront and transcend your limiting beliefs, ultimately paving the way for an existence without boundaries. Even though we talk a lot about boundaries on the show, this is a great way for you to really take down some of those boundaries. John's story is a timely and compelling one for This audience specifically, in an era where burnout, mental health challenges, and struggles for purpose are increasing, John's journey from the pinnacle of corporate success to profound personal realization offers hope, inspiration, and actionable insight. Not only does John have the book with several endorsements that I won't mention on here, but he also has a podcast and his social media following is 650,000. So he has a massive engagement in the community. His podcast has been ranked number one to an alternative health podcast, which is called just the same as his book, Passion Struck with John R. Miles. And he has generated over 17 million downloads and is listened in 169 countries, and has well over 20,000 five-star reviews. Without further ado, let's dive right in and welcome John R. Miles to the Luxury of Self-Care podcast. This is wonderful. I'm so happy to have you here on the show, live on the microphones, and um, starting off our morning well with a nice podcast interview. So I'm excited to have you here, John. Welcome.
1: Excited to be here.
0: My favorite question to ask anybody, just like right out the gate, and this can be whatever you're feeling this morning. It can be um, things that are happening for you in the new year. But if you were to divine yourself today in this moment, who is John? Who is John Miles?
1: I'm excited to say that for the first time, I am an author. And it's something that I've wanted to pursue for so many years of my life. And I finally made it a reality. So it's Awesome coming into 2024 now being able to use that official title.
0: Yeah. I think we define ourselves so much by our jobs. And I've spoken about this so many times as I always define myself as an actor for the longest time. And as I migrated out of that and moved into more of a traditional lifestyle and becoming a wife, it was weird. I was I felt like I lost my sense of who am I. But to to add something to that list is always exciting. So congratulations on that and happy 2024. It's gonna be a big year for you.
1: I certainly hope so. And one of my (laughs) speaking of actors, one of my favorite uh, interviews I've watched was, was Hillary Swank. And she says she gets that question all the time. What are you? Mm
0: -hmm. And she said,
1: there's so many different ways I could answer that. I'm a mom, I'm a producer, I'm a director. I'm a, she says the, the way she likes to answer it is I'm a storyteller because regardless of what role I'm in, that's what I try to do.
0: Yes. Oh, I love that. I want to steal that. (laughs) (laughs) that's great speaking of being an author let's dive right in do you want to tell everybody the book that you're about to launch that's about to be released
1: for those who are on video um, i'll put up a copy it's over my shoulder uh, but it's passion struck 12 powerful principles to unlock your purpose and ignite your most intentional life and it comes out february 6th
0: I love that. It's a new year too. So it seems like it's just such a perfect time for people to reset and restart, which I've talked about all throughout January episodes and will continue to do so. But as far as starting the book, where it came from, I think anybody that's someone that wants to write, you know, it's something that sits with them for a while, but starting that process, what was the whole journey? Was it something that you were doing for a while? Um, did it come up and it was this aha moment, couldn't stop from writing, or how how did that all come to be? I'm one
1: of those types that process things best when I write them. And so I like to journal. I like to write all the time. I do a, a ton of blogs and, and other things. And I had been running uh, a, another company that I created, but I had felt this compelling push to to do something where I was really serving others and trying to help them become the best version of themselves that they could possibly become. And as I was trying to think about what that meant, um, I started to write different elements of what I thought constituted creating this intentionally fulfilled life that we all aspire to live. And Mm -hmm. I think it was through Starting to write out some blog posts that some of this started to formulate in my mind, um, putting pen to paper. And those visions ended up becoming the book and the movement and the podcast and everything that has gone from that point.
0: I think that it's interesting to see how we, I use that word manifest a lot. I think a lot of people utilize that word or like a vision board or something like that this time of year. And it becomes a little redundant over time. So it's it's always interesting to see something new that we can kind of strive for, that we're a little more um, a new setup. And I feel like this would be something that could really, you know, jumpstart everybody into this new year. When does the pre-sale come out? When are you coming out?
1: So the pump is ready for pre-sale right now. And if Perfect. people... Yeah, and if people do uh, pre-sale it, for the community, I've custom curated a whole bunch of incredible free giveaways, including 2 ebooks, a master course on uh, five ways to unlock your purpose. Plus, I'll get free access to the first chapter of the book and some other free things.
0: The quiz, the five five ways, is that the transition points in the journey? Um, or what were the transition points in the journey? Yes,
1: yeah, so that's exactly what ended up uh, occurring is i kept getting requests from people to understand uh, as they've been listening to the podcast how do you understand how do you figure out where you are on this passion struck journey and so Mm -hmm. the last chapter i actually wrote in the book was these five transition points uh, that make up the journey and so i created a quiz Uh, it's actually available now but it goes with that chapter and it's about 20 questions long takes you about 10 minutes and from that, you determine are you a subsister, an imitator, a vanquisher, an orchestrator, or a creative amplifier, which are the five okay. different uh, plateaus that I created.
0: Okay. I like that. We have a, um, I'm not sure if it's a universal platform or not. I'm pretty sure it is, but it's called Standout for Work. We do it at the end of every week because I'm on the marketing side with my job. So they're always, you know, doing analytics, taking surveys, figuring things out. How do we learn? But, uh, it's probably not a surprise to you but I'm a creative. I'm sure you're you're part creative as well, of course if you're an author. But um I always find that really interesting to understand a little bit more. I was always big into like Myers-Briggs, um the Enneagrams, anything like that to kind of really understand the breakdown. So I'm um I'm a creator but I'm also a connector. So I I connect with people and that's what makes me feel purpose um to drive and introduce this person to this person because they have this connection and be able to kind of pull everybody into a circle and feel included in a setting. So I would love to take this quiz. I need to take it myself, especially before we launch the episode. So I can t- speak a little bit more on those transition points, but do you feel like you can see when you're talking to someone like where they probably fall?
1: Especially the more I know someone, it makes it a lot easier, but yes, yeah. it, <laughs> it, as I've been doing this more and more, it becomes uh more readily apparent has, uh, yeah, it, but you have, you've got to ask them some, some questions to understand where they are in their life. But absolutely, yes. yeah, I think it's important for people to understand that wherever, when they take the quiz, it shows that they are. So say you're in one of the lower stages. It it doesn't mean that that's necessarily a bad thing, but people mm-hmm. can reach a higher level in their lives and then have, whether it's trauma or some other life event hit them and it causes them to to move down. And then they've got to reinvent and rebuild certain aspects of what yeah. they're doing. So it's important for people to understand that, I think, when they're taking this.
0: Absolutely. And sometimes we just need to clear things out. And And life is all about probably going up and back down and then up and back down and constantly reinvent, reinventing yourself, which I think we all take that evaluation in January, of course, to reinvent rediscover certain things, add things in that we've been cutting out or neglecting. And usually that has to do with self-growth. I think this time of year is is everybody kind of comes back to that moment of, of growing. But you were saying that this book kind of helps along with tips as far as reinventing yourself at any stage in your life. Can you speak a little bit more on that?
1: One of the things I open up the book with is one of my favorite quotes, and that is uh, by David Henry Th- Henry David Thoreau. And it's the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. And I started it out purposely with that because I think, t- especially today in this fast paced, success driven society that we find ourselves in, that the idea of living lives of quiet desperation is more prevalent than ever. And what Mm -hmm. I mean by this is that oftentimes we find ourselves in jobs or positions in our life that lack fulfillment. It's like spending the days I think we've all felt in that monotonous loop of meetings, emails, presentations, Mm -hmm. whatever they are that drain rather than inspire. And so what I wanted to do was to craft a a guidebook uh, because I don't want this to be read. I want it to be lived, but that will allow you to come out, come into this, whether you're a new college grad or a high achiever and have value from the principles that I that are outlined. It's written uh, in a way that uh, it, it's divided into three sections. The first are mindset shifts and the mindset mm-hmm. shifts is a great starting point because it influences the Why? It then moves into behavior shifts, which are the what, and the last section of the book is really on the psychology of progress, which is the uh, the where of how you're going to apply it. So mm-hmm. that's that's how I organized the book, but uh, okay. these principles were created based on me studying some of the, the biggest vanguards um, that you will see, whether that's CEOs, actresses like Hillary Swank, who I cover in the book, or... Performers, professional athletes, and I kept seeing this repeated pattern of principles that all these people that we look up to, um, who have hit it out of the park and are living this fulfilling life, all seem to follow. And so that's what's laid out in the book.
0: It's it's very interesting because the mindset shift is is different. So I do this thing called the paradox process, uh, which is extremely different from therapy they kind of they go hand in hand but they're very different and it's a mind retreat so it is it's really about like utilizing key tools to get rid of things and um, I had the founder and CEO on the show in the past whom I don't practice with specifically I practice with one of his proteges but it's interesting to leave something that you're passionate about. To go into something that feels a little mundane, like my job right now i I love it. i'm I'm good at it. It's not difficult, but my it's not my passion. Like there's perks of it that I absolutely love. But what I do love is all the other activities I'm able to do. and like that, I look as a paycheck instead of my passion. so i I hear this all as I'm as I'm thinking about it. and it's I think a lot of times we think we're defining ourselves and our success by our title and our job. And sometimes that's not always the case. Kind of to go back to what I was saying earlier is when we're introducing ourselves, we're immediately introducing our job titles. I think it's interesting to sit back and really evaluate all the things that you have in your life and how you really answer that question kind of comes full circle again with that statement you just said.
1: I think you're absolutely right. It's interesting because if you look at different reports, such as Mackenzie did one in 2022, 70% of people say that their personal sense of purpose is defined by their work. Yeah, And that goes into just what you were saying. And so when work feels meaningful, they perform better, they're happier, they're much more committed to different aspects of their life. Mm-hmm. But when they don't feel that, then they've got a huge gap in, in their life. And mm-hmm. I, I have to tell you, that's what ended up Happening to me as I rose the, the corporate ladder and I call myself a recovering corporate executive, but yeah. that was definitely true for me. I, for many years, w- would have told you I was passionate about my career, but then as I got more senior and more senior, uh, I started finding myself involved in things similar to what you were saying that became more of a paycheck and less the things that were driving me forward and that I was really passionate about because how much passion can you have when the majority of your job becomes office politics and managing mm. HR issues? It's very difficult.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Especially it just spends, and it depends on which way you're moving up to, right? I mean, we always had, so If let's just go off of what I know. So as an actor, you always had survival jobs, especially living in like cities like LA. I lived in Manhattan for a really long time. So you spend your whole day doing your creative work, and then you spend your night literally just like making money in whatever way, Um, bartending. I did promo modeling, babysitting, workshops, whatever, you know, dance competition, judging. I mean, anything and everything I could do, whereas now that chakra, that sacrum, uh, that security nugget on the bottom of our sacrum, you know, that grounded feeling feels good because I know I make a good money, and there's a lot of fun perks. But it doesn't feel like my purpose anymore. My job used to feel like my purpose. like The acting used to feel like my purpose. So now it's interesting because I feel like my purpose is so many more things. And that list is so much longer. And I used to limit it. Even when I was doing what I loved, I limited it to being a performer, singer, and dancer, actor. Like That's what I defined it as. And now I realize leaving that, that it's not the job title and it's going to be Wife, mom, podcaster, um, creative, connector, like all these other side things, that can be my purpose. Whereas my, my job, I'm good at, I do like it, but it's not my purpose anymore. And it's been really interesting moving into this transition into a traditional lifestyle in the past two, three plus years. At 35 as well, you know, just reinventing myself 100% trying to catch up to all my friends who have been living this traditional corporate ladder growth lifestyle since they were post college. So it was fun and exciting to do all that stuff. But my husband and I, who are both performers, just feel so behind at this point in our life. But we have to let go of that comparison and realize that, like, we lived a whole other life that was successful and now we're moving into the next chapter of of life.
1: Well, you've just covered two principles of the book right there. So <laughs> perfect. Just what in, just, they
0: tell us. Yeah. Touch on
1: them. So the first one I the first principle that I go into is the mission angler. And okay. I came up with this because I live in Tampa Bay. Um, although I am from you work right outside of of Lancaster. Yeah,
0: right by me. <laughs>
1: And we do have bodies of water, but they're nothing like uh, the the Gulf of Mexico, but
0: (laughs) anyone
1: anyone who knows how to fish, whether it's in a stream or a lake or in the Gulf of Mexico knows you don't just get your rod, just go to a spot and hope that all of a sudden you're going to catch fish. You typically are pretty Mm -hmm. methodical about it. Understanding where the fish are going to reside here in the Tampa Bay area, the tides, the moon phases, what fish are in season, et cetera. But I find mm-hmm. that so few of us craft our life with that same strategic sense. And mm-hmm. what you were just bringing up is that we often start looking at our future self and we start trying to do it in a way that we're comparing ourselves to people. It would be like mm-hmm. you or, you or I as podcasters trying to compare ourselves to Joe Rogan or or Tim Ferriss. Right. Which,
0: yeah, exactly. Which the, there, there's no comparison. Are,
1: or Emily Morse. <laughs> I mean, people who've been doing this 15, yeah. 16, 17 years of their life. And so what ends up happening is we end up finding ourselves in the gap because we're in this mm-hmm. endless sense of comparing ourselves to an ideal that we can't accomplish. Whereas what we really should be doing is as we're doing this new life crafting, we should be really looking at our future self and comparing it to the progress that we've made over our past self, because that's the gap and that's where the real progress is made. And then the second thing you talked about, uh, which is my second principle is the need to be what I call a brand reinventor. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that I found, and also um, I like to, I like the work of Dan Schwabble who's a partner and a research director at Future Workplace And he, like me, interviewed a whole bunch of people, in his case, 1,200, of everything from CEOs to astronauts. And what he found was the most consistent trait that any of them had was the consistent pursuit of reinvention. And that it's something, Mm -hmm. especially now as we're getting into AI and this new way of work, I think is going to become even more paramount for the future generations that are coming up now to perfect
0: Absolutely. It, it is, it is very different time. And I think that's one of the hardest things, at least that, I mean, I'm, I'm a true millennial as far as like where I fall in the timeline of everything. And I think that's one of the things for millennials that's been difficult to explain to our parents. And it's sad to even think this and say this out loud, but we may be the first generation that may have less than our parents instead of progressing, Um, which is kind of wild to think in that way too. But just to, to say in the sense that things have changed so much, but what the pandemic did teach us, anyone, no matter what age, is that you can always pivot. And that was something that I think people were so fearful of before. A lot of us had to pivot during that time. And it's become a a buzzword, I guess you could say. It's definitely become more of a buzzword, like, let's pivot, let's reinvent. But I do feel like it's something that's more approachable, acceptable in society now. Uh, and people are realizing it's something that, you know, you're not doing what, you know, two two generations, my grandparents did. You're not starting in one job and, and retiring in that job. That's just probably, it's very rare these days to do that.
1: Well, absolutely so. And I I was C-level in Fortune 50 company, so I have seen this play out so many times. If you can reduce the bottom line to improve the top line, the company is going to take that 100 times out of 100. And if that means Mm -hmm. that they can bring in some AI tool to replace people, which is the biggest cost that a business has, guess what? And so it's something that people need to be prepared for, and I'm a huge Mm -hmm. advocate that more and more of us need to be if not an entrepreneur, a solar solopreneur, because I think you control so much more of your own destiny. When you start looking at yourself as an independent contractor who can serve multiple clients instead of being focused on one. And Mm. it may take some time to shape yourself into doing that, but it protects you. If one line of your business revenue starts to tank, you have others that can be there to hold you up. And so, it's a philosophy that I try to that I try to instill in my kids is to to look at passive opportunity, passive income opportunities, but also to constantly be out there and learning, so that you're positioning mm-hmm. yourself as a thought expert that can cross multiple industries, multiple dimensions.
0: One of the things that I heard you say that re- like really resonated with me was we should always be learning, and my word for 2024 is listening and not just. In one way, but listening to so many different things, either listening to like myself and my gut or listening to others so I can learn more, whether it's about myself personally or learn something new to take away, which I love doing these interviews because I get to learn a million things when I get to do them, which makes me so excited to have people on the show. And and for my listeners too, I there's only so many podcasts out there, as you know this, this as well we can have something to say every week, of course, but content can get stale. And as soon as we have a guest come on, it like ignites all these different things to talk about. So it's, it's really interesting to keep that learning tool moving. Then you, you said you have kids. How many kids do you have?
1: I have a son. He has a younger sibling, my daughter.
0: All right. Wonderful. How old are they?
1: They're, they're now adults. So uh, my son is now oh, okay. 25 and yes. my, uh, my daughter is 19 and is a sophomore in college.
0: Wow! So, how is that for you? With this book in mind, with them in those beginning stages of life, real life, like you know, adulthood life. Let me put it that way. Do they do they eat everything up? Or are they like dad? Like are they like <laughs> are they very into it or? How how is your relationship with them now that they're moving into adulthood? And and a lot of these things, these points that you're hitting in your book um, are really coming into fruition for them.
1: So the question I often get is, what would you tell yourself if you were your 23 or 24 year old version of yourself? And I would tell them Mm. to buy my book. That's what I would tell myself. And I wrote this and I dedicated it to my two kids because I really wanted to give them a playbook and yeah. those who are coming up on how do you create this fulfilling life? Because, you know, we, we were talking just a couple of minutes ago about the generations before us and not being able to live up mm-hmm. to the expectations that they set for us to what, what it was like for home ownership and other things. And I mm-hmm. remember being in my late 20s, early 30s, and knowing what my parents had, and thinking there is no way I'm going to ever be able to achieve the life standards that they had. And then yeah. I did. So, but I understand it. I do think that one of the things that I'm seeing happening with my kids, and I talk to them about a lot, is I am seeing this new generation coming in being more concerned about finding something that they're passionate about then mm-hmm. i would say people in my generation and in my parents generation which i th- think was more concerned with uh, the american dream and mm-hmm. high achievement and mm-hmm. was more materialistic focused so one of one of the biggest things i try to instill is, in my kids is that don't focus on the societal standards of success the yeah. the possessions the The titles, those things, the things that are going to make you feel the most success in your life are the relationships that you cultivate, which I love that you're a connector and what brings you happiness and contentment. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: it's those things that are typically intrinsic that are going to do so. So those are some of the things that uh, I try to tell my kids and I try not to be overly Um consuming on pushing them in any direction because i feel like that's what happened to me is i was pushed by my grandparents and my parents so much into thinking in a certain way and you were talking about paradoxes earlier mm-hmm. one of the most important chapters i think in the book is i call it the perspective harnesser but it really is about the power of paradoxes because in western culture we have been thought we have been taught so much to do linear thinking which is either or thinking and paradoxical thinking is so important uh, for how we need to approach our lives because it really is a society where both and thinking is more important, meaning mind and body, self, Mm -hmm. you you know, having self-determination, but also self-compassion. So I encourage him to, to think in those terms, because when we practice that, linear thinking it leads us down to paths where we only see things in one way and we don't embrace the diversity that we really need to have to live the lives that we want to
0: yeah and and it should be diverse you know there in the sense of it should be diverse in your life really just to be able to have multiple streams of income multiple hobbies multiple activities multiple um ways of being creative, right? Multiple ways to relax for your day, multiple ways of self-care, you know. So to go back to you talking about journaling as well, I believe that so many people have multiple ways of journaling. And I do love to journal myself. And there are times that I look at it more on a, a reflection. So what's really intriguing to me, the podcast has also produced this for me as well. I'm not sure if it has for you, is that comparison tool you were saying, not necessarily to others, but to yourself. What have you accomplished? And I look back, I listen back on like um, a paradox process session because we record them or a podcast episode or reread my journal. And I really do see, oh my gosh, I was so worried about that at that moment in time. and like, look, we accomplished it all. Like it was within reach. So the words I was saying this year to go back to the... Um, focus was manifestation, but actualization. So even though we're trying to spread ourselves out, actualizing in a strategic way what things are actually doable to accomplish within the week, the month, or are going to take a full year or so to accomplish. So looking at those trans um transformative times and like small choices or um, micro choices, can you speak on that? Because I know your book kind of talks about that as well.
1: So one of the things I, I talk about in the book is that I think the things that lead us to being self-realized or self-actualized are three sides of a triangle. Okay. And I, I talk about passion and perseverance. Um, and I reference uh, Angela Duckworth's work on grit, which is really about those first two things and how through studying West Point Cadets she found that those were the two ingredients that led people to either graduate or get through plebe summer or not. Mm-hmm. Um, as I looked at that, having been a naval academy grad myself, I oh wow, per- I yeah yeah. So I, I have some firsthand knowledge here. I definitely see what yeah. she says about the need for passion and perseverance. Because if you're not passionate about wanting to graduate from an institution like that, it's it's not going to happen and you're going to need to pers- mm-hmm. persevere against all the challenges that they throw at you. However, I think the thing that it was missing from her work is the concept of intentionality. And this is where those okay. micro choices come in. So I like to to tell people that every day, there are so many thoughts that cross our head. Some experts say it's 60,000. Yeah. Some, some people say it's 90,000, but oftentimes those thoughts are this inner voice that we are hearing that keeps telling us to do the same things over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And we end up in these constant loops where we're taking the easier path to life instead of the harder path. And what I mean by that is Cornell University did some really interesting research that they came out in in 2018. And this goes back to the beginning, when I was talking about lives of quiet desperation, they asked all these older adults as they were approaching the end of their life, what was their biggest regret? And mm-hmm. the biggest regret that 76% of them came back with was that they didn't live the life that they aspired to live. Mm-hmm. And that's, and so I bet you, if you asked them about that quote, many of them would have said, we found ourselves." In this life of quiet desperation, because all of a sudden the burdens start coming on you, you've got the house, you've got the family you' mm-hmm. you've got the yeah. expectations that you've set, the lifestyle that you've set, and it's so hard to break free from that. So what these micro choices do is if I take the example of the naval academy, there are th- there are choices that you make every single day that carry you forward to achieving the goals that you want to achieve. So if you're a student at the Naval Academy a midshipman, then the things that you're concerned about are one graduating, but another one would mm-hmm. be course class rank because your class rank determines do you get to fly an aircraft versus being a submarine submariner or a submarine surface warfare officer. So it mm-hmm. really dictates not only that, but longer term your class rank dictates when you get promoted. So if you're at the top of your class, you get promoted throughout your military career at a faster pace than a classmate who finished in the bottom quarter.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, So if you align those choices with your long-term aspirations and with your values as guiding principles, they become intentional in nature. And then those micro choices that you make day in and day out lead you to a waterfall of aspirations instead of a valley of mm-hmm. despair. And I think yeah. what people don't realize is that it's those everyday moments wh- that end up shaping our days, our months, our years. And it's the micro choices yeah. that we get in the pattern of making that then form our habits and everything else.
0: Absolutely. And habits are different than... um We used to say this all the time. Sometimes it's out of habit. So like if you're sitting in a room, I had an acting teacher. I cannot recall her name right now. She came in and did a workshop for us at my conservatory. And I remember we were all listening to her. And all of a sudden, someone came in behind us. And she said, um, she was like, why did half of you look back to see who it was? And the other half didn't. And we were like, well, we were just trying to be the people who did it and who was myself. I was like, well, I was trying to like not give attention to the person that was coming in the room that was disrupting what you were saying. Um, but she was like, but sometimes we need to like observe and know all the things that are happening and observation of yourself sometimes noticing what's a good habit and a bad habit. Is it a choice or is it a habit? Walking into a yoga class and putting your mat in the exact same spot. Is that by choice or is that a habit? So creating good habits and non-good habits are also part of those choices every day. One of the good habits for me is to write down my thoughts in the morning, whether it's a recap on yesterday, a recap on something, or working through something in my mind. So to connect what you were just saying along with the journaling, how do you feel um, journaling assists you and has your journaling changed or do you have multiple different types of journaling? I typically
1: use one consistent journal. What I like to start my journaling practice with is and and it's I have a 50 week challenge going on for this year right now and yeah. the first the first challenge I decided to give people was to not only start a journaling practice at the beginning of the year but I think one of the easiest ways to get at least my head into it is I try to write out three things I'm three gratitudes every single day okay. and I try to make them different every day and by doing that, it it for me, eases me into then being able to reflect on other things in my life that i that I could journal about. but i I tend to to do that. I look at uh, the things that I'm, i' I want to be intentional about for the upcoming day, week,
0: mm-hmm.
1: month. I journal about what's going well towards my aspirations, what's not. And yeah. I try to to really think about uh, how am I getting in my own way. And mm. because we are, are, uh, the visionary mercenist or the self saboteer to oh, the always. very aspirations. And so I try to think about how am I getting, how am I arsoning my own visions and what yes. do I need to do to, to change my, my paths?
0: Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, it's, it is interesting. Cause I, I'm like you as well. I do like to have my one journal and I allow it to be different things. I have some friends who journal and they literally write letters to their future selves. So they always like are writing like dear future me or and then I have some friends who write um they have different types of journals. So one is literally like a line so they'll write it for 5 years. They'll write just like a sentence or two and be able to look back on it each year that they go through it and it'll take them 5 years. So I find it interesting how everybody has A morning routine, which I feel like we're starting to get into. I feel like you definitely have some type of morning routine. Do you want to share yours with us?
1: So I I love to read. And two of my favorite books on morning routines are The Miracle Morning with Hal Elrod and then The 5 a.m. Club with Robin Sharma. So I have over the years incorporated a lot of their practices into what I do. But I do uh, most days get up at 5 a.m. Unless I'm watching The Eagles play the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and (laughs) need to stay up a little bit later to watch the Eagles win.
0: Um, But generally,
1: generally (laughs) I wake up at uh, 5 a.m., and for me, my practice um, involves, as soon as I get up, I I drink a glass of water, so I, I get hydration right away, and then after that, uh, the first thing that I do is I, I take my dog and we go on a about a three-mile walk. And I use that walk for various things. One, obviously, exercise. But more importantly, being out at that time in the morning, it's one of the only times that I find that the world is completely quiet. You're not mm-hmm. passing cars or very limited ones. There are not too many people you're passing on a walk. And so for me, it's a great state for me to to do mindfulness practice and to really think about how I want to set the day up and so I spend the first 15 to 25 minutes just um, no headphones and nothing just trying to use uh, the universe and trying to listen to the sounds to get me in that mindfulness state and then I use the rest of the time uh, typically to do research on guests that I've got coming up or podcasts I'm going to be on. And so I listen to a lot of podcasts, uh, to, Great. to do some yeah. self-learning. And then from there, um, I get back and I, I go to the gym and after the gym, I come back and then I journal and I read and then start the day.
0: Yeah. And we, we talk about these morning routines and I listen, as I listen to you too, I just was at a recent, uh, doctor's visit. And I was telling them about my my sleep schedule and how that was, and they're like, "How do you how do you do that?" And I was I said, "Well, we don't have kids yet, uh, and and I work, I make my own, I make my own uh, schedule. So I, you know, unless I'm teaching a yoga class at eight fifteen in the morning, and I want to set myself up for that, you know, you just kind of choose to go to bed at this time and you wake up at this time, and you're able to have that morning routine. But I do feel." for those, it's harder to do that morning routine for those who clock in and clock out. But again, it's just about making those choices. So whether that means that you need to wake up at 5 a.m. And if that's to set you up for that success, to set you up for that morning routine, is to go to bed at 9.30, you just have to make that choice. And the older I get, the easier it is to make that choice. Whereas the younger me, you know, I was would be working at a bar until 2 a.m. So obviously that was not my sleep pattern or schedule by any means. But you know, as we get older, we really start to take care of ourselves a little more. And even that gym or the walks, the walks are huge. If if you're not a big gym person, I'm always like, just maybe for them, it's pop your headphones on to feel stimulated. Or I love to listen to podcasts on my walk. That's like where my mind kind of gets to connect. I'm also an extrovert. So I have that time for my alone thoughts, but sometimes on the walks, I want to be like stimulated by hearing a familiar voice that I listen to on repeat each week. So it's interesting to um, hear different morning routines. And I'm sure for you, this is that's probably your form of self care is this morning routine. Am I correct when I say that? Yeah,
1: I think you bring up a a really important point. Different at different stages of life, um, you can incorporate different. Routines, but the most right. important one is I found that I was most out of balance when I didn't have a self care routine. And yeah, at, I, I remember at that point, I had the two kids, they were younger, I was working crazy hours at work. Mm-hmm. And for me, it at the end of the day, it was so hard to do the self care things because that's when I had the opportunity to spend time with my wife. It's when I had the opportunity to spend time with the kids. And so I found in my day, the only place I could put it was early in the morning, which is how I originally got into this routine. But the more important thing is that you just, whatever your schedule is, find a place that you're going to be dedicated to allotting yourself that period of time every single day and just stick with it. So if you're a night owl and then do your self care routine at the end of the night mm-hmm. so that you're setting up the next day to go the way that you want it. So I think it's just, yeah. it's, each each of us have that opportunity t- to make it. But what I would hold the audience accountable for is it's so easy to say, we just don't have time. We've got all these things going on. I mean, I believe me, I was there. I was working 80, 90 hour weeks at the time, yeah. and I w- yeah. I was still able to fit it in. Um, you just yeah. have to be intentional about it and make those micro choices to do it.
0: Exactly. And they really, they really are micro choices because it does, it makes you feel better. And even on the, like I said, those busy, busy days, I get like sucked into something, but also, you know, there are those moments of distraction. we talked about, uh, we talked about technology kind of continuing to evolve. And sometimes I'm a huge fan of Instagram and sometimes I'm like, not, I, I utilize TikTok for a purpose, I utilize it like Google. So I'm not a huge TikTok scroller, but I'm always like dinner recipes with chicken because I'm like bored with what we have and I have chicken in the fridge or um, you know, ideas for a nursery for like me thinking about future family, stuff like that. So I utilize it as Google, but it can be so distracting. So if I just tune that off and my job also involves marketing. So as you can imagine, we are on Instagram as well. So if I tune that off, I do realize that I have those extra fifteen minutes, even on those really busy days, where I'm like, just put the dog on the leash. It's going to make her day, and that was that's huge for me too. You were saying you're going out on a walk. Did you say you you're going out with your dog? Did you say that, or just by yourself?
1: No, I have a lab, and okay, I take him.
0: Great yeah. dogs. Yeah. Now I have a Pomsky, but I was just listening to um, what is it? Um, the billionaire what's it called? The Billionaire Something Podcast. I cannot recall what it is right now. But they were saying like ways to have a happy life. And one of those 10 things was um, just looking in the eyes of your dog and you just how easily you make their day and taking them on the walk is always worth it. Like my dog always wakes me up in the morning and she's just so obviously like my alarm does, but she wakes me up as well. And her joy of just like getting you out of bed It's so fulfilling and it doesn't, I'm not telling everyone to go out and get yourself a dog. I didn't grow up with dogs. So we raised her. She's basically, it's to me and my husband, like our first kin, if you want to put it that way. But to to get them out, to get them excited also stimulates me. I feel like I'm able to look at life in such a more enjoyable, light, easy way, as opposed to sometimes when I feel that like pressure pushing you down that walk and especially just looking at them, just kind of re rechecks myself. And I'm like, life's not that bad. Things are going to be okay. We're going to get this stuff done. Let's move forward. I don't know if you feel that way at all, but I think that companion is really, really wonderful. Uh, Yeah,
1: absolutely. And I think just like having little kids, a a dog Uh is similar in this way in that when you do show them attention, their absolute adoration for you just shows up immediately because that's really all they want. And it's so funny for me because some oftentimes I'm in the crux of trying to get episodes uploaded or something else. And I won't even notice that he's standing right next to me and he's just sitting there looking at me like, I am right here. Why aren't you paying attention to me?
0: Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're cute. I thought mine was going to come up here. I think she's hiding underneath our bed downstairs, but they're, they're really wonderful. And I, I totally get it now having a dog for five Ish years uh, and and raising her from puppyhood, like I I get I get it. They really do make life. Uh, I think it just checks me sometimes, and I'm like, it's not that stressful. Like we got this, <laughs> you know we can we can take it down. And and honestly, like I know a lot of people got animals during COVID too for like anxiety and stuff like that. And and sometimes you really do feel, um, like you're, you're on the edge. So, so anxiety can really kind of, there's so many ways to deal with it, but I do see people just finding ways with like an animal to really kind of take that pressure off as well. Yes, so. And
1: speaking of anxiety, that's another yeah. one of the principles that I cover. Okay. I, I call it, uh, the anxiety optimizer.
0: Mm. Uh, okay. Tell me more.
1: Well, I have just found throughout my own life, um, especially when I was in the service that mm-hmm. there were times, um, I, there were times where the anxiety would hit me, especially yeah. if we were going on a mission, which could be life or, or death. Think if you think about it. And so you, you go into those things just really apprehensive, but how do you start controlling that? So, if you think about anxiety, it can kind of be like a flame and flame. Mm -hmm. You can focus on the negative aspects of it, or you can focus on the positive aspects of it. And so for me, it's about how do you turn anxiety into a positive thing and your ally as you're approaching life situations. So that's what this whole book is about and, or this whole chapter is about. Yeah. And in it, I, I profile a long-term friend of mine uh, who Is a retired navy seal and retired astronaut named chris cassidy one of the things that i'd like to talk about in this chapter is that when he was going through buds he was faced with all kinds of anxiety he was faced with these trying times and he started to utilize the concept that trying times were like an elastic band and that if you thought about your anxiety during them that you could use it as a fuel to propel you through those trying times, it completely Mm -hmm. changed how you would approach them. So this is really about how do you put yourself into that state of optimum performance or optimum flow um, that we often hear about. So I kind of guide the reader through different steps that they can take to create optimal anxiety in their life.
0: Yeah. uh, I definitely think that's a very positive. Even that chapter alone is, probably going to speak to a lot of people. I think the anxiety levels have really risen a lot in the past few years and just trying to understand how to deal with it. The one good thing though, I do feel is that people are more open to dealing with um, different forms of assistance. So if that's reading more or self-help books, even having, I think it's more acceptable as well to even just therapy in general, so it, anxiety has definitely been a huge factor into many challenges in life and having to deal with that. So I love that. I I didn't mention this earlier, but I was going to tell you my husband's um, in the Navy as well. So he, but he went through boot camp at thirty, and that was part of our transition uh, into more of a traditional lifestyle. And it was during COVID, so it was a very very interesting time, but he he's an E5 now and he's a reservist this whole time. So it's not like he's climbing very fast, but that is a lot already to like do with your civilian job along with that, along with trying to like grow and evolve. And I think sometimes he puts a lot of uh, pressure on himself because he thinks that he, like the evenings he wants to be working on like a class or something like that to like get out of his current job but then the Navy will call and be like, this, this report was wrong. You're an idiot. And like just completely talk you down. So it's very interesting for him to do it in an older stage of life uh, and to be talked down to from people that are like, you know, five, ten years younger than him constantly. But they also – people his age kind of applaud him a little bit more, give him a little bit of a different light because of the fact that he's just more mature and at a different point in his life too. But that anxiety alone has been, um, a huge toll on him as well. I can see it for sure.
1: Yeah, Um, definitely. And, and I was fortunate, uh, one of my last commands I was part of, I had, a a boss who at the time had been in the Navy for almost 35, 36 years. He had started out as an E1. And at this point, Oh yeah. He he rose all the way up to a, a master chief, then he became a warrant <laughs> officer and, then, oh, and yeah. then he was a commander. Yeah. And and I remember uh, his nickname was Commander Fitz Hitler. And <laughs> I was so apprehensive, <laughs> obviously, <laughs> before I went before I took this job, and he turned out to be the best boss I ever had. I mean, there were oh, moments goodness. where I could oh. see why he was called Fitz Hitler. But what I really appreciated him is those moments, if he was going to go off on me, I typically deserved it, but he would always do it uh, behind closed doors. And what I loved about him is he was such a great teacher. He taught me so much about communications, how to write, um, and I could be 180 degrees off what he would want me to say. (laughs) But if we were out in public, he had my back like no one I've ever no boss I've ever had um, up to then and or have had s- since. So.
0: Since. Yeah. It's interesting management in general. And I know you kind of touch on this as well. I worked at Lululemon in management and I, I realized for the first time, I was like, oh, I really like this. Just managing in general. And that's kind of the career path. Like I'm currently in a role, but we can go towards like an educator role or we can go towards a management role. And I always said I wanted to move towards that management role because at Lululemon they they do really invest in you. I mean, obviously it's a lot more than just selling clothes, which you can get really woo woo and like take time to go into that. But they give you a lot of resources. My point of it is all that when I used to manage, I was like, I just want a million Anastasias, like I just want a bunch of me. And I realized, you know, this is early twenties, but I realized over time uh, how much different. It really is to listen again and to understand how everybody's different. And I would always say, like, I have more of a, like, a hands-on approach, or am I sitting more back and letting them do the work? I personally like to learn by action, and some people like to learn by watching. But learning about people and management, and I know you, you do speak on this, helps me even understand in a role where I have a manager – why I love them or why I don't like them and helps me to continue to build this repertoire of like what makes a good leader, what makes a good manager. So can you speak a little bit on that? I know you have like a whole, uh, I think you have a chapter on that as well, yes?
1: I have a a chapter that I have laid out called the Gardener Leader. And mm-hmm. I'm someone who's kind of been brought up in an era of servant leadership and mm-hmm. I thought that being a servant leader, which is something that I've practiced for much of my career, uh, was extremely important. But I think as we're going into this new phase of society, that we need a, a, a change. Because yeah. one of the things about being a servant leader is, is you do kind of have to be very hands-on mm-hmm. from the standpoint of of guiding that team. And I think as more and more people are going to be remote, etc we're not going to have that luxury. So mm. what gardener leadership really is is if you think about humble gardener who lays the seed, tills the land, etc, they need to be eyes on but at the same time hands off because they've got to let nature take take its course, the fertilizer take its course, just time take its course. And I think we as leaders need to do so much of the same thing, which is growing our influence like a gardener nurtures a garden. And in this chapter, I I profile two people who on the surface would appear at at opposite spectrums. One was General McChrystal, um, General Stan McChrystal. uh, And the other one is an entrepreneur, Keith Crotch. But what I found by examining both of their styles is that they both perform this eyes-on, hand off, hands-off. So if you think about this from General McChrystal's standpoint, uh, imagine he's got a group of Green Berets who are operating in the, the Gulf. There's yeah. no way that he can be hands-on to guide them. So he needs to be eyes-on from the standpoint of he's given them the mission, he's given them the importance of the mission, he knows mm-hmm. that he's given them training to do it, So he's cultivated them so that they're best positioned to be able to do it. But he also needs to be hands-off to allow them to have their own situational awareness, understand what's happening, and to allow them to make the decisions based on the training and uh, basically core learnings that they have done up to that point, that he's got to trust them to make the right choices. And so this chapter really gets into... The importance of delegating to the right level, effectively hiring for your weaknesses, the, the yeah. notion of becoming ambitious, putting the team first at all costs, and inspiring through a noble mission or through a culture of being passion struck.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I love all that. And that me, as I'm approaching parenthood and you host them under your roof, let me put it that way. I know you said your daughter's still in college. Um, how do you feel that that same reflection could be transitioned into parenthood? If you could go back to like your younger self, do you feel the same way? Right? Like in a certain way, I left, let me, let me use this as an example. I left at 17 and moved back to my hometown at 32, I want to say. So really spent a lot of my adult life balancing my own money, making my own choices, decorating the way I wanted to, dealing with life in a way that I then chose my family, meaning your closest friends, the people you surround yourself with, your partners, and so on and so forth. It was a real big challenge to come back as an adult saying, this is me, this is my life, You, I don't make those decisions for me anymore. You need to trust that you planted those seeds and I've learned things on my own as my adulthood as well and coming back. So you're kind of getting in that moment with your kids where they're still your children, but like now they're adults making their own choices. Do you feel like you can reflect kind of that chapter a little bit into parenthood?
1: Yeah, I know for me, one of the struggles that I had to deal with was trying to relearn parenting through my lens instead of following what my parents did. And I think sure. that's very difficult for any of us to do. But what I found was that I, when my son especially was younger, I was a lot like my dad had been with me, overbearing and sure, micromanaging. And my dad was a was a prior Marine. And so I had a lot of that. Yeah kind of dictating dictating what I should be doing instead of letting me make my own mistakes. And so I, as a parent, I have tried to incorporate this eyes on hands off. I, I think to me, what you want your kids to be at the end of the day is resilient. You want them to be nice people. You want them to be um, responsible. You want them to treat people as if it's how they would want themselves to be treated. But I find the way that you have to do that is you have to instill those virtues into them, but you can't make them do it. Because I think the more you try to force your kids into something, the the more they're going to revolt and try to do the opposite. Oh, of
0: course. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And they so wanna, they want to drive their own path.
1: What we tried to do was we, we tried to set the parameters for them on the life we wanted them to have, but we did it in a way where we allowed them to make their own choices and their own, make their own mistakes and learn their own lessons. And um, it, you know, obviously my daughter's still in, in, in college, but it's, it's, but, you know, it's so uh, gratifying for me now to see my son because, you know, he has become the person that we had always dreamed he would be. And, you know, he's, he's very kind and very helpful and thoughtful and, and all those things that you, you would, that we always wanted to cultivate in him.
0: Yeah. And I think work, work comes and goes, money comes and goes too. And even if you think you've set yourself up for complete success, things can all come crumbling down. Right. So at the end of the day, the character that you become or your children, especially that you want to instill is really the most important thing. How do do they, how resilient are they? I love that you use that word because when things come crumbling down, can they pick up the pieces? Whether they were set up, you know, with a job where they're making, you know, quarter of a million a year, which is wonderful because you know that they're going to be safe, but that job could come crumbling down and how, how do they recover from that? Just like, you know, going all the way back to toddlerhood when they're first learning to walk they're going to walk sometimes, sometimes they're going to fall and like, how are they, how are they able to pick themselves up? So it's, it's very, it's a very interesting thing, especially now, you know, approaching us approaching like parenthood being in our mid thirties as well. And like, what are things that we've learned that are different choices that we may make even more so now than if we were to do it at 25, just like for food for thought. So I love that you had that approach still in parenthood. It's really beautiful. Um, I do want to ask you one more question. I know that you were talked about, uh, the three types of human mosquitoes in your life. And I want to touch on that, uh, before we wrap things up, if you could.
1: Yeah. Well, earlier in the conversation, you were I almost brought this up because uh, yeah. you were, you were saying how you're an extrovert and a connector and that one of your things you were focusing on this year was, was listening, listening. Um, yeah, but, what this chapter really gets into is oftentimes we're listening, but we're listening to the negatives that are coming Mm -hmm. from us from some of the people who were closest to whether that's family members or friends. And we've just gone through the Christmas season Mm -hmm. and how many of us, (laughs) when we think about going into some of these family Sessions. It's like that song by the band Horses, "The Funeral," which is <laughs> yeah. really all about. The whole song is about how much he hates family gatherings, yeah. because of how much anxiousness it makes him feel. Yeah. But so, as I was thinking about this, I, I was on one of those walks, and I happened to hear a radio announcer come on, and he was asking the audience to call in and tell him who was the most dangerous animal on the planet, and like everyone else. I was thinking the great white shark or this animal in Australia or, or this snake or whatever. And turns out none of us were even close. It's the mosquito. The mosquito kills more people in a year Mm -hmm. than all sharks together will do in a hundred years. And yet they are so benign where we Uh think they are. And we often don't even notice that they're there. Or even if they are, it's kind of that nuisance of this buzzing and you're swatting around but you don't really yeah. think of them as a threat yet they're one of the biggest threats when they become human mosquitoes to our aspirations and mm-hmm. so i wanted to make this a fun chapter because people often say you're the you are the reflection of the five closest people in your inner circle and i yeah. think that there's a lot of merit to it but we tend because we've heard it so much to just hear it and then do nothing about it but Right. I, I, so I identify three human types of mosquitoes. The first is what I call the blood sucker. And th- I'm a big fan of Terry Cole's work. And this to me reminds me of, she, she talks about boundaries a lot, but these are really yeah. the boundary destroyers in your life who want to take that last pound of flesh, no matter what, what it means. And then there's the invisible suffocators who are the pessimists in your life or the glass half full type of people who you, you have that amazing new job opportunities. And it's that uncle who at Christmas dinner hears about it and then is telling you about all the negatives that it's going to sure. impact on you. And then oh yeah I think the third that everyone can relate to is the pain in the asses or <laughs> what some people call the pieces of work. And so what I really talk about is once you identify who those people are, you then need to start doing an exercise i like to say just do it as simple as think about shooting a bow and arrow at a target and start laying out the people in your life in groups of 5 in that target mm-hmm. and then start using that simple mosquito analogy to start auditing out which ones of them are these negative types of influences who are keeping you from or holding you back from where you want to be and then yeah. it becomes a great way for you as you're interacting with them to and to be able to determine, are any of them these human mosquitoes? And then to start enforcing the boundaries that you want, or maybe it might mean that there's such a hindrance that you have to permanently extract them.
0: Right. And it's, in, it's so interesting too, because you're absolutely right. We talk about Christmas. Family is so wonderful. And it's also so challenging and an anxiety driver, absolutely. And I think the worst part is, too, and one of the biggest things that I've had a challenge with is, like, how can your number one fan and your number one cheerleader also be that, that, like, fun sucker? You know, like, they can, like, literally suck all the good out. And it's really hard because I think at the end of the day, you know, again, moving into parenthood ourselves, trying not to make the same I don't want to say the word mistakes, but like trying to evaluate what are the good things we loved about our parents and what are the things that we wish we could like, you know, obviously we're going to make our own mistakes as well. Maybe they'll be the exact same ones, but we're going to do our best to evaluate, you know, what was positive and what wasn't that we can maybe try to fix in this generation, this next one. And it's, it's really interesting because like the, that's the hardest part, right? If it's like your parent, your your um are a person that literally, you know, helped you live and really did for 18 years and then at the same point you're also kind of hitting this this uh, pivot of now like I don't need you anymore and my husband and I keep talking about we need to make choices and and he tells me this it's a lot easier for him cuz he's the you know this is his in-laws but for me being a daughter, being the firstborn too, it's like me saying, you know, these are these are choices for me and my family now. I have a family now, and I need to make these choices and uh, to know how to approach those boundaries is like been the biggest learning lesson that I'm gonna constantly be evolving for the rest of my life as well, and and continuing to to build upon. And and I've been you know approaching them in the past three years, moving back to my hometown. So it's very interesting to uh, hear that approach. And I'm very excited to read that chapter as well.
1: Great. Well, so I'm, I'm glad yeah. these things are all resonating with you.
0: They're so resonating. They should be resonating with everybody listening too, I hope. So to, to wrap us up, let's talk about your book. You said you is, all, is already out for pre-sale, but when does it actually, when's our actual launch date in February?
1: February since. So okay. coming right around the corner. And uh, I, I'm really excited about these pre-orders, though, because of what the the reader will get in addition to the book. So one of yeah, I'll just highlight one of the ebooks. So w- one of the things I mention at a high level in the book is a process that I've been using for 25 years that has helped me both professionally and personally, to 10x where I'm at. And it's called the mm-hmm. Deliberate Action Process. It's a six-step process that on the surface seems pretty easy to understand, but it's harder to implement. And I've developed a 60, 70 page ebook that really takes it down into worksheets and examples and how to apply it in your life. So that's just one okay. of the free gifts that that someone would get access to.
0: Okay, wonderful. And all all of the places that we can get the book. So the book's called Passion Struck. If we didn't see it, you know, if you're not watching on video <laughs> and seeing all the wonderful places that you have it presented, uh, but also if if you didn't catch that, and where can everybody find the book?
1: Amazon would be the easiest, but it's on Barnes and Noble, uh, Walmart, Target, etc. And then if you like supporting indie stores, then you can go to bookshop.org. It's there as well. But once you've okay. done that and you have your order number, then go to the Passion Struck website forward/passion slash passion struck book and there's a form that you can fill out you just put that information in there and then i will email you these uh different gifts that i've curated
0: That's wonderful. And where are all the other places that we anybody can find you whether it's Instagram social media and uh the website as well.
1: Yeah, so thank you for that. Uh, um yeah. i am John R Miles on all the social platforms. I i have a uh famous Cousin in the UK who was a rock star, so it's
0: oh nice <laughs>
1: impossible for me to get the SEO for John Miles. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so I, I use my middle initial, uh, and you can find me on the Passion Struck podcast, uh, which is in the health space. we we're, we're a top six health podcast wow. uh, globally, and then you can uh, find me at my website at JohnRmiles.com.
0: Wonderful. Well, John, this has been honestly such a treat. I'm so glad uh, that we were able to connect and pop on the podcast and just kind of break down some of the things, not only in your book, which congratulations, by the way, again, but not only in your book, but how it's really affected you and your life, your daily routines and so on and so forth. So I really appreciate all of your time here today.
1: Yeah. So I was the guinea pig for my own book, but again, it's really, (laughs) it's really based on me observing how this has impacted people like Oprah Winfrey or Jim McAlvey, who started square or Bono, the singer for U2, is another one I studied Mm -hmm. or Jeff Bezos. So um, I I took all these things that I saw them doing applied into my own life. And these things really work. So uh, if you're really looking for a life guide that whether you're feeling stuck, maybe you're a high performer, but you're looking to get to the next level or someone at the beginning of their career, it's been written for any of those audiences.
0: I love that. I'm very excited. I will be ordering the book myself after we get off the podcast for sure. But um, I will have everything in the show notes if you missed anything uh, that John was talking about as far as websites. Be sure to look at all the show notes so you can get all those links specifically. And uh, be sure to order Passion Struck thanks again well, for thank coming you. on the show. Yeah.
1: Anastasia, thank you so much for having me. It was such a joy and honor to be here.
0: Yeah. What a treat.